Welcome, friends, to another episode of The Conversation. My guest today is Ted Vaughn, who's a partner at the Historic Agency, where he helps organizations around the nation understand and excel in their own unique brands, in the branding business. Before that, he worked at the Great Rock Church in San Diego, if you know Miles McPherson. But Ted has worked with organizations across the nation, helping to work with teams and developing healthy and high-functioning uh, teams working in, in media in their organizations, and he's been working with us for some time. Ted, it's great to have you here today. Thank you for having me, and thank you for that fantastic intro. Ah. I sound uh, so so impressive. Well, so you are. Uh, I, I want to dive right into something you and I were just talking about before we even um, started sure. this podcast, which is, you know, I, I don't know if you use these terms, the great disruption. But, you know, in your, I don't know, you let's say 20-year career, whatever, how long you've been doing this kind of work, you know, would you say, how would you rate this year in terms of challenge? I'm talking about the year that just was, you know, 2020. Yeah. How would you rate that relative to what you've seen over the last uh, 20 years of your career? Well, in terms of the past 20 years, gosh, if we're thinking about disruption on a scale of 1 to 10, I think in terms of the past 20 years, we're, we're getting close to a, a nine or 10. Mm. If you think about it in terms of, uh, you know, U.S. history, um, I think global wars would be, you know, pushing that edge. Um, I think there are other disruptions that are far more threatening. I, I think what makes 2020 feel so uniquely challenging is um, not just COVID, but the pace at which disruption is occurring through multiple mediums and channels, be it technology, be it biotech, be it health, be it, I, I think we got comfortable with change at a somewhat steady rate. And I think 2020 just has revealed how fast change is going to be happening as a norm mm -hmm. moving forward. And I think, I think some millennials and younger generations just assume that because they've been born into it. Mm -hmm. But I think my generation, Gen X and older, I think we tend to not fully understand how rapid disruption and change is going to continue to occur. So it's not just the size of the disruption. What I'm hearing you saying is the 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 the, the accelerated rate of change that has um, is also different and is part of the calculation. Yeah, a hundred percent. And if you look at stats. Uh, in corporate America, right? How long did it take certain industries to hit market saturation or certain brands to hit market saturation, right? Well, in the good old days, it, it would take 15, 20 years to get X number of people flying on an airplane. You know, I think it took um, the app, uh, what's the app, Candy Crush, uh, 15 days to get 50 million users. So the technology accelerates the pace at which change mm. and thereby cultural adoption yeah happens you know it's funny when, when when you say that when you say that i think of which is now an old story i think of the arab spring and the impact of facebook right so maybe some of us you know we have to remember what is the arab spring you know um however many years ago you know prior to the war in syria i mean i don't know that's seven eight nine i don't even remember i mean that that's a handful of years ago and many uh, looked at the arab spring um 
which, um, you know, one of the big results, which is still alive today, is the war in Syria, but is um, the, the, the impact of Facebook, that Facebook was seen as a major reason how this political um, bottom-up disruption happened. And that's old news, right? So it's interesting that you say that. that that's um, kind of an old example already of the kinds of changes that are happening yeah. because of technology. You know, just another example that that uh, fifty million number that tends to be kind of a a number that demonstrates a certain degree of saturation. So it took um, roughly seventy five years for the landline telephone to hit fifty million users. So seventy five years in a time where technology was just beginning to kind of bubble up, right? Mm -hmm. The airplane industry needed 68 years. The automobile industry took 62 years. The light bulb took 46 years. Television took 22 years to hit the, the same 50 million milestone. It took YouTube four years, Facebook three years, Twitter two years. And as I was saying earlier, games like Candy Crush and Angry Birds less than 50 days. Wow. Interesting. Now, this is I don't know if I prepared you for this question or I was thinking about it, but when you think about that reality, the pace of change and the um, the size of these impacts, how does that? How do you take that into the work that you and I do, or a lot of, which is the Church of Jesus Christ? What what? How does that impact how we think about what we do? Yeah, it 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 is for me exciting and invigorating and i think for the clients i work with it's overwhelming and daunting <laughs> right, right. <laughs> which might make you question whether i'm in the right industry i think uh. i am but i i find that if, if you talk to corporate america some of them go oh wow yeah no we're we're aware of it we're dealing with it right we're, we spend x number of thousands of dollars on consultants and you know we're you know you talk to some industries like dot-com or silicon valley groups and they're like yeah we love it that's how we thrive it's how we make money we're all about hitting that 50 million mark you talk to nonprofits and churches and they're like i don't even know what i don't even know what to do with that right <laughs> It, it, and it's like, well, listen, this is the world that you're ministering to, whether you're a church or you're a mission-driven nonprofit that right. seeks to preserve the coast or preserve the forest right. or preserve a cultural um, expression, whatever it is, the, the, the donor base, the world that you serve, this is where they are. And at some point, if a gap gets too large between how you operate and the world that you serve, minister to, exist right. to reach, pull funds from, that gap will result in your irrelevance and eventually your dismissal, which means you'll have to close up shop. That's right. And when it comes to the kingdom of heaven, I, I don't think God is nearly as concerned with that compared to most pastors of local churches who have somehow thought they could play the game of avoiding culture right. or avoiding technology. Right. You know, I think in I think in 2020, right, there was a potential of 20% of churches across America closing because they couldn't pivot or react or respond as quickly as they needed. You know, and I, I think, think with a digital platform or whatever. 
What's that, Rob? No, I said like you when you when you're talking about churches, those who couldn't, let's say, do something as what we'd say is simple as a digital platform, right? In other words, if you couldn't, if you didn't have the ability or didn't spin up the ability to have a digital platform, you were almost on the verge of, uh, you know, closing your doors. Yeah, I mean, I, right. I think I think that was the significant pivot, and you know, I, I think in some ways, when it comes to the world of nonprofit and church. COVID didn't introduce new problems. COVID revealed I like that, existing man. problems. Right. I mean, there were already trends in attendance that were in decline years before COVID. Right. There was already a massive digital infrastructure where communities were forming and engaging that the church by and large avoided or was not contextualizing the gospel into. There were already millennials who were on apps who were ingesting hours of content that had nothing to do with local church programming for the most part. Right. So when COVID hit, right, everybody made a scramble to digital, but it really wasn't innovation. Right. It was Catch it up. was crisis. Yeah. And, and I think that's one of the distinctions I think we need to make. Um, I think sometimes we think reaction to crisis is innovation and Mm. I think reaction to crisis can be a form of innovation, but if the only time you innovate is when there's crisis, right. I wouldn't say that you're innovating. Right, right. And what would you say? That being said, um, let, let's let's look at the whatever the best examples are, because you you have kind of a national um, point of view in 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 what you guys do in historic. Where where have churches, um, in your opinion, you don't have to name the churches, but you know um, have who have done more than react? Where has there been some real innovation, some real um, sense of, you know, taking advantage of the opportunity to to lean into the acceleration and um, and move into a new uh, direction or a new way of doing ministry? Yeah, there are some fantastic stories out there. I mean, you know, I, I tend to. Uh, sometimes have a maybe more prophetic side of me that sounds super critical. And, <laughs> you know, I, I actually think there are some amazing success stories um, in the world of church because of COVID. In many ways, Rob, what you and Browncroft have mm-hmm. done um, in, in your pivot and shift and your adoption and your, you were early adopters to innovation. And I think that's why you, you not just survived, but thrived mm-hmm. in times of, um, disruption and um, physical shutdown. So k- kudos to the work that y- you guys have done, and I'm just proud to have gotten to be a part of it. Um, other examples of churches that have thrived in this crisis, um, I need to be a little careful because a few of them are, it's they're in the process of product development and right. new ideas and e- even some NDAs. So <laughs> I wanna be cautious, I'll be, I'll be generic. I'm working yeah. with a significant church of influence in New York City. And they were already going through some succession stuff. They were already going through their own questions around brand identity in light of this new season of not having our primary leader at the helm. Mm-hmm. What do we do? And then in the midst of that question, COVID hits. Right. And it would be very tempting for those campuses, those churches in New York City to go, uh, let's just write it out. We got plenty of money. We got donors who are hedge fund leaders who will keep giving. We don't. We don't need to make this harder. And to their credit, they didn't. They said we're going to take advantage of this opportunity because ultimately, what we're more afraid of than losing dollars is losing influence for the kingdom. Mm-hmm. So we're 
we're going to maximize this time, innovate, reposition our brand, think about digital ministry, mm-hmm. make changes to our core product and service. And that's been really inspiring. Mm-hmm. Um, another example is a church in Arizona that is making the commitment to go digital first. Now, I don't recommend this for most churches, but for them, they're going to look at the physical attendance, the physical audience as a core part of their ministry, Mm -hmm. but ultimately as a studio audience for content that will be far more influential through digital distribution. So the physical gathering is essentially a studio to create content for digital consumption and engagement because they happen to have a brand and a following that is is global they're also going to create an amazing youtube platform with different products and and services that are unique to certain audiences to Mm. influence the kingdom like cigars and whiskey podcast that the lead pastor hosts that ultimately takes pastors to cuba right it's very niche but but i find niche and good gets influence way beyond broad Mm. and not so good Mm mm-hmm well, and I would imagine something just like that. I never heard that example or that story, but it I, I would hope it's also giving pastors, leaders opportunities to um, you know, to use business language to um, reach a different segment of the market, if I can say that, you know what I mean? Whether whether that's about, you know, so, whether it's about sports or in this case, some sort of sort of piece of culture like cigars and, and whiskey or whatever you just said, you know, whatever it is, how can we um, if if the world is becoming smaller in a sense vis-a-vis technology, um, if the reach is becomes more curated, right? I might ha- I might reach somebody that's you know a hundred miles away because um, of of something that we share or some point of view that is they would never um, otherwise have come to this church or or you know but you know like you just mentioned with this guy in, in Arizona. So there there's something about that if we can if we can say okay how does that how do we not not in the sake of just you know more is more how can we have more eyeballs in our church but if there's a unique point of view if there's a unique market for people who are um, you know connected to or would be open to a, um, a a series of questions or a point of view um, or an interesting idea a subject that brings people together through which you can then talk about the gospel so I like that I, I think we who knows what God's doing in um, you know one thing I was thinking about Ted I don't know if you've thought about this but you know back to um, you know what's God doing in the bigger picture I mean who knows I don't know I just believe that God is sovereign and he's the coronavirus is not some is not an afterthought I mean I'm sure he's he's doing something I, I, I won't claim to know what but but here's one thing that I've thought about. Maybe you just said this. You know, the great book of Acts, the church gets launched, and all's well. But one thing that's a problem, you know, Jesus says in the beginning, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, which are geographical references to an essentially, a, you know, centrifugally work your way out, you know, from the center to, to the larger world. Okay, that's really what he's saying in Acts chapter 1. This is the mission of the church. Everyone says amen, and for x number of years you know nobody does that i mean they the the 12 apostles who are the leaders at that time all stay in jerusalem they have a kind of a mega church there for a season and um not much happens beyond that the the entire body of christ if you want to call it that are all jewish background people and nobody really leaves until acts chapter 8 verse 1 when 
you know, some version of the coronavirus, I'm just being funny, but I mean, some version of something called persecution, you know, falls into the city of Jerusalem. And it says in Acts 8, 1, that every one scattered except the 12 apostles. Next thing you know, the church, not through the internet in this case, but through, you know, people getting on their um, horses and riding out of town, that the church, the gospel begins to spread. And I would imagine if you did an interview, you know, with the Jerusalem Times, with, with one of the apostles, you know, at that point, they'd say, you know, this is the end of the world. This might be the end of the movement. This is, you know, we had a mega church yesterday and today we got nothing. But you and I know, you know, if you look at the book of Acts, just that document, that the exact opposite was actually happening. The church was not becoming smaller, it was becoming greater as it embraced a whole new unseen kind of reality, which was this, you know, um, you know, spread across the community, not being tied to Jerusalem. So I just wonder, you know, if what's happening or one one piece of what's happening is the coronavirus in some ways has shut down the church as it functioned in the for, for years. I mean, not a lot has changed and doesn't in, in many generations. Um, and maybe it is for that very same reason. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, I My go-to passage for disruption has been the parable of the mustard seed. Mm -hmm. I don't know, Rob, if you and I have ever talked about this, mm -hmm. but yeah, have you heard me? I think so, but say more. Go ahead. Well, you know, it's a very, very, very short parable, parable of the mustard seed, right? I mean, essentially... Uh, Jesus says that um, the kingdom of heaven is like this very, very, very tiny seed that somebody took and sowed, and it grew into this massive tree. Right. I would call it a weed tree because right. mustard was a weed. It, it, it was, if anything, something that a good person of God in the time would avoid because it was disruptive. It was like yeast. It was like, hey, listen, this thing's out of control, so just stay away from it. Right. So. And then what we find is it becomes a, um, a shelter for birds, the birds of the air. So I think when people hear that parable, they tend to be like, oh, it's lovely. Small things can grow big. What a great what a great life application, right? Belongs in a Maxwell book. Right. But really, right, if you think about that parable, the people hearing Jesus give that parable, right, were agricultural. They either made their livelihood or certainly fed their family through planting, through crops, through growing stuff. And they were probably people who were concerned about being good followers of God. So this radical guy named Jesus says kingdom, the kingdom of God is, is actually like taking something you've been told to avoid, intentionally planting it so that it grows into a disruptive tree, mm -hmm. weed tree, to make shelter for who? For birds of the air, which anybody planting seeds and growing stuff Right. They tend to not want birds around. Right? That's why right. that's why we put up scarecrows. Right. So like I just think if I put myself in the sandals of the mm. people hearing Jesus, that that basically is like Jesus saying, you want to know what God's kingdom's like? Everything that you hope, want, and believe being turned upside down. Right. Right. Sometimes. Right. Well, and, and I and I think, you know, and I find more and more of that with your point about Acts, to your right. point about it's all over scripture. Right. God is regularly right. disrupting, displacing, relocating. Right. Right. <laughs> it's not it's not an uncommon thing. I think right. the challenge is that we in the church in the West have been so used to comfortable climate 
so that our soil really didn't have to be that healthy. Right. Because man, when the sun's out and it's like California every day of the week, you can grow anything in any quality of soil and it mm -hmm. kind of doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. I think what COVID has done, where we're heading, where America is going when it comes to faith and Christianity and, and Christendom, if you will, is into a very challenging weather season. And I think in challenging weather, you really need healthy soil. Right. So if we're going to uh, grow and maintain growth in this challenging weather condition we're moving into, we better have healthy soil. Mm -hmm. So I think to a certain extent, disruption and change and antagonism towards faith, right? I think, I think right, wrong, good or bad, the season of Trump has done damage to the word evangelical. I think, right. I think all of these things have ultimately made the weather less conducive for church growth. Yeah. And we need to have healthy soil if we're going to thrive or grow in the weather patterns that are ahead. Yeah. But you know, what I love about what you just said, even um, the Trump thing, not to make it a big thing about that, but I, I think part of what happens in disruption is, you know, um, whatever you want to call them, you know, um, sacred cows are, are, are challenged or, or um, the status quo is interrupted and, and things that um, either may have been seen as important or at least um, representative are, are, are torn down, you know. And, but in a sense, I think there, that's always, typically that is the, is the, is the um, you know, first stage of true innovation and development. And there's things that, um, there's probably um, a lot of Christians, okay, I'm sure I'm going to offend somebody in this, but a lot <laughs> of Christians that who, who, are, who, who, who are true um, Bible-believing believe Christians who, who have great um, commitment in their, in their walk, who would say, you know, the, 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 the evangelical or, or the, the religious right, you know, in, in the marriage between, you know, the religious right and, and politics, a certain brand of politics has, but rubs me the wrong way. It's, it's, it's an impasse to my evangelism. It's not who I am. I think it's given the church a bad name. You know what I mean? They, they, uh, there's some people that have um, been, some, been uncomfortable with that um, marriage, even though it's understandable, perhaps from some some political policy point of view, and now the the culture, in a manner of speaking, has dismantled in a sense that, to a degree, it has it has there's been a, a clash that maybe has disrupted something that that is maybe some people will feel as a is a loss, but maybe is actually helping the church become politics aside, more truly what it's supposed to be, right? So I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I want to look at that in a positive way. I know there's a lot of points of view on that, but I think anything that we become too um, committed to as a, as, a, as a form of propping up the gospel or helping the gospel or status quo, um, it, you know, parts of our culture— you know, tend to be things that almost like you're saying a non-digital church. I become very comfortable with them, and they become the way I understand the way um, the church is supposed to be done. When they might, and over time, become something that stands in the way. I don't know if I'm making sense, but I mean, listen. My uh, personal opinion is that the best thing for America, for the globe, I would argue, is a 
incredibly moral religious people and an incredibly secular government. What I mean by that is a government that makes decisions in the best interest of people, not rooted in any one theological framework. Right. Uh, value system, moral system, yes. Theological framework, dangerous. Because right. even within your church, Rob, right. no matter how great of a job you do, you know, getting a theological framework out there, 25% of your church will look at that and disagree in a robust way with a piece of it. Right. So theological alignment and agreement is overrated. The idea that a complex topic like abortion or the death penalty or fill in the blank is right. somehow going to have complete theological alignment that leads to policy, that leads to it, – it, it, it's, it's impossible. And if you think somehow religion is designed to influence government insofar as people behave and don't need regulation and laws, yes. But, you know, the amount of laws on the books have increased by three to four hundred percent over the same time period that people's personal moral convictions have eroded. So I, I think the idea that the church is in the business of political power or control yeah. is actually damaging because it distracts from the true business we're supposed to be in, right. which is about individual behavior, piety, spiritual practices. And I, I think I think in some churches, I think they get that right. I think in other churches, we over-focus on America and politics and, and our governmental system as the answer. And I just don't see any precedent in Scripture suggesting that that's what Jesus was attempting to do. Well, you, you say something that's so worthy, worthy of a conversation of its own, which is, well, how does, how do, how does change actually happen vis-a-vis you know, what Jesus has to say. It's obviously, if your heart is not transformed, you know, if someone doesn't have a true, whatever term you want to use, enlightenment, you know, uh, um, you know, epiphany, uh, you know, uh, a um, come to Jesus moment, get knocked off your horse, whatever that you want to talk about, unless you, your, your, your eyes have been opened by the Spirit of God, these are Bible terms, um, you know, and you've had a heart change, then everything else, to quote the great Dallas Willard, is, you know, the gospel of sin management, and it's driving people away from the actual change that the, the gospel presents, right? I could create um, um, someone who's a moral exemplar and in, in, in whose heart is, is um, unchanged and is self-righteous, and we call these Pharisees. That's, that's kind of, you know, we, we use that term to talk about people who are self-righteous and that aren't, um, and Jesus was his greatest enemy. So I think that's really important for us to say. The whole idea that you can legislate morality is by itself, relative to what the work of the church anyway, um, wrong-headed. You're, you're going to create a group of people who um, maybe have who have lined up with a certain set of moral values, but whose hearts are unchanged, and that's a nightmare scenario in a manner of speaking, and of course that's been seen historically um, throughout the life of the church. Let me, Ted, for sake of time, ask you a quick, just a quick question, and then I got a couple more about about your work, because you do um, kind of what you guys do at Historic is branding work, you might say, and most people think of branding work as in, you know, like uh, Nike or Coca-Cola or something. So just yeah. for the sake of people listening, um, how does branding um, first, you know, you could say this, you don't have to spend a lot of time, how is it How is it helpful to churches or nonprofits? And would you say, as a follow-up to that, 
is the work that you do um, more or is it more important or less important in a post COVID world? Would you say? Uh, I'm biased, but I'm going to go with more important. <laughs> <laughs> right. um, but you know, I would have said my work's more important in a pre COVID world too. Mm-hmm. But I, I do think COVID has made the the subject of brand more important. Um, you know, we, I believe our agency was built on the premise that the subject of brand and brand strategy is a frontier that the church needs to better understand and embrace. And they have not to their own peril, whereas we see consumer brands in corporate America and other major nonprofits doing an incredible job of thinking about brand and brand strategy. So one of the the big differentiators for how we approach brand is that identity is a piece of brand but it is ironically or counterintuitively the least important dimension of your brand compared to culture, compared mm. to your product, compared to your experience, which is how you feel, compared to your story, which is what you say. Mm. And um, what we found as an agency in, in the beginning of our years, we'd work with a nonprofit church corporate America brand, and they would spend tons of money on identity, tons of money on product and service innovation, tons of money on user experience digitally, but they would avoid culture. And they would never talk about how our people, how our leaders, how our key stakeholders need to behave and to reflect the brand or what it means to truly be innovative as a leadership team or make Mm -hmm. room for innovation. So time after time, we would work with brands to do amazing things And it would be a lead balloon when it came time to launch because the leadership had no idea how to embrace, approve. We weren't practicing what we preached. In a manner of speaking, right? I mean, mean, preaching is the external brand. We're not, you're saying the teams themselves weren't doing it. It's like saying uh, we as a church are all about missional evangelism. We want to live life alongside our neighbors and, and when we can share the gospel. Love that. It's a great book. It'll preach. How many of your staff do that? Right. Oh, only None. two. Right. <laughs> right. 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 Yeah. So what are we talking about here? Right. Like, right. like leaders shape culture. So if we have wonderful ideas that become core of our brand, but we don't actually. A great example of this is a VC firm called Indecent Horowitz. I think that's right. Horowitz Indecent, Indecent Horowitz. Um, they wrote a book, uh, one of one of the founders of that uh, VC firm called uh, What You Do Is Who You Are. And mm. one of their um, operating principles as a brand is we don't uh, talk down the entrepreneur. If anybody in our firm throws shade or talks smack about an entrepreneur, it is a terminable offense. You're you're fired immediately. And that's because for them, the entrepreneur is king. They Their life is about crazy entrepreneurs who can be nuts and hard to manage. Mm. But they've said they're so important to us, we don't want a culture of slapping them down. Like that is a great example of a brand making a, a principle or a value right. that then shapes behavior. Mm. I think more nonprofits and churches need to take their value system and their theology and their core concepts and actually extrapolate it to behavior so that their leaders who are right. at the end of the day, the right. tip of the spear of the brand, right? right? Cause as the leader goes, the brand goes. Yeah. Well, that's I mean, so helpful. That no, go ahead. 
Oh, just to say Enron. Enron had oh, on the right. walls integrity. Everyday people came to work, yeah, but that example. didn't necessarily prevent their leaders from from making decisions that weren't rooted in integrity. Well, it's helpful for you to say that. I mean, just we talk a little bit about what you do, because most people wouldn't associate. They, I would guess, Ted, you know this better than me. That some people hear branding and they almost think, um, you know, sales marketing, or they they almost have it almost pejorative. I mean, right? They think you're you're yeah. trying to sell me something. But what you just said is in a more sophisticated, thoughtful way, is that branding, another way of talking about what do you really believe, what are you really about, you know, and and do not only your customers, your community, know about it, are you actually um, a living um, um, example of what you're about? That's kind of what I heard you just say. Yeah, I mean, listen, imagine Southwest hiring um, wonderful people who are introverted, kind of intense, angry curmudgeons who didn't like to talk. How would that play? Right, right. That would, that would, they're, they're, uh, they would be um, quickly creating a larger and larger community of customers who say these people are not what they yeah. say they are. Right, right. I mean, they'd have to change their marketing because yeah. from their color palette to yeah, their messaging yeah. to their, their, their brand is all about fun, low barrier to entry, engaging. We're going to wrap the safety video. I mean, you know, it's, it's brand from the inside out. Now, you can be a successful brand and not integrate into culture to the extent you, you should. But what I will say is if you find brands that get the culture piece right, they tend to innovate and excel beyond the brands that don't. I actually think culture the leadership, the way that you operate needs to be on brand or reflect the brand. And most of the time we look at culture or leaders and go, it's either healthy or not healthy. Yes, healthy is important. If you have tyrannical, oppressive, lack of good management, all the obvious barriers, that's just stupid. Don't do that. But let's say that you have a base level of health. I would say, is your healthy leadership body operating according to your brand? And if not, why do they even know what that means? So it, it mm. it's taking brand to a deeper place. Yeah, no, I like that. It's very, especially maybe in a season where there's been so much disruption, um, it's a challenge for all of us to say, are we about what we say we are about? Because if we aren't, we might not survive. Um, I have just two quick questions, Ted. We're running out of time, but I'm, sure. I'm, I'm going to tell you the second question first, and that is um, about the, the the most influential book that you've read in the last year, whether it's for Pure Escape or 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 it's Challenge Your Thinking. And then let me ask my question, and I'll tell you my book, or at least one of them, and it leads to my question, which is a book written by um, a guy you may or may not know. You probably know him, Daryl Bach, who's um, the one of the um, New Testament guys at Dallas Seminary, but he wrote a book called Cultural Intelligence in 2020. And that's just a fancy way of saying, um, you know, for let's say church people, do we really understand the culture in which we live? Because if we don't understand the culture in which we live and the questions of the culture in which we live, then we're not going to, we're not, we're going to be um, really, um, not engaging them and we're just going to be uh, talking to ourselves. And so he's saying for various reasons 
the, the, the cultural questions maybe back to where we began this conversation because of the, the, the change and the acceleration of many things, right? Who people are, who are the Gen Z people? What are their points of view, not only on technology, but on morality, on, on many things? What do they, do they even have a, um, a biblical framework at all, et cetera, et cetera? But anyway, here's my question. In, um, what, 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 what is the culture that we live in to, in your sense, because you're in the business of engaging culture and helping people do it, is it asking new questions that the church needs to begin addressing um, relative to the even the events of the last year if we hope to be able to reach them? In other words, what are the cultural questions? Or what do you think? What do you hear them being that maybe the church like you were saying before, they were already being asked prior to 2020, um, but now things have accelerated such, and in in the culture, in the way people access the church or don't, has changed so much. What are those questions, and um, how can we be? Uh, how do we need to get better at answering them if we want to be effective? Uh, I have not read that book, but I just ordered it while you were talking. Uh-huh. <laughs> Sorry for multitasking. Um, I love that question because I would say, yes, there are fundamentally different questions that millennials are asking. And those questions matter because the millennial shift into power, authority, control, purchasing power has been one of the largest sociological shifts in America ever because of the size of the millennial force, if you will. And the questions they're asking are very different than even my Gen X group has asked certainly different questions than boomers have asked. And I would say the two questions that I find the most frequently um, asked through how they behave, through how they engage, through their patterns and through their, you know, purchasing decisions. The first question is, can I trust you? Mm. Now, I think trust has always been a concern for any generation, but I think generations earlier assumed trust and didn't need it to be proven as readily or frequently as millennials do. An example of that is boomers didn't need the pastor to talk about their life, be the real deal, let them into the personal side. If anything, that was considered uh, an offense to the gospel. You wear a robe. We have a modesty rail. We separate ourselves. We elevate ourselves. You know what's so interesting about that? I and I don't want to knock anyone. I like John MacArthur. I know a lot of people don't like him or whatever, but <laughs> but I heard him say this is interesting, and, and and he said, I and this was not that long ago, and he said to to your point, he said, you know, he, I never talk about myself. In other words, he almost was saying that's not appropriate. So that makes sense, right? Of his generation, that was how they rolled. So keep going. Well, it, yeah, it was their boomers had great institutional trust. So trust was rooted in a solid, predictable, consistent, excellent. And and certain uh, brands like the church were trusted just by nature of their Presbyterian, um, uh, you know, uh, moorings or the fact that so it was a very different type of trust. Trust has always mattered, but I think trust has moved into authenticity, transparency, genuine, real categories that never mattered to boomers. Mm. Trust was about solidarity, consistency, 
institutional strength and stability. And I think all of those things for the most part have proven to, the emperor has proven to have no clothes on, right? Enron is an example of that. And there's about 85 others in the church, out of the church. So, So the question millennials are asking about trust is, can I trust that what you're actually saying is who you are, is what motivates you? Can I trust that what you actually want from me is, um, is, is right and, and you actually do wish me goodwill and I'm not just a purchasing unit that you're going to manipulate, right? So I think fundamentally marketing, communication, and then that means brand has got to begin to build trust with its audience differently than it used to. That's why churches have to begin to shift the images they put on their website. That's why brands like Patagonia win every day because Patagonia makes a promise that says, this is who we are. This is what we care about even more than what you purchase. Mm -hmm. We would like you to purchase this, but at the end of the day, what's more important is that you vote or sign up or defend Greenpeace or you know, the Sierra Club or the Surfrider or whatever it is, right? Like they are a activistic brand that has maintained corporate control for the purpose of using their consumer products to fuel their true agenda, which they are transparent and honest about. And the, the cons- millennial consumers love that. Even those that don't resonate with their mm. agenda, they still think, hey, Nothing but respect for that brand. Mm, I like. <laughs> I it. think that you know Yvonne guy is crazy, and I think their agenda is wrong. But man, yeah. they keep it real. Yeah. Well, it, it brings up this other longer issue of do organizations. You know, this has become more popular in the last. You know, I'm, I think of the guy that's ahead of you know Salesforce.com. This is years ago. Uh, whatever his name is, I forget his name. Now Benioff, Mark Benioff, or whatever it said. You know, um, I, even before we were a wealthy company, I said we're going to give. 10% of our money away or something, you know, be, which was easy when you make $100 when it's harder when you make $100 million. But let me ask a final question to you, Ted, so for fun and just so people know you, and it could be, you know, you don't have to impress us, but what, what, what book, if you look back over the last year, would you say it's the top book that you read just tells us something that's, whether, whether it's sheer fun or it's something that's influenced your thinking? Um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't read books for sheer fun. I'm not, I'm not good in that category of fiction. Um, I, uh, I've read two books that have been fundamentally, um, enlightening and helpful. Um, I think the book that is the most relevant to the broader audience listening to this would be, uh, no rules rules. It is the book about Netflix and their culture written Mm. by the CEO, Reed Hastings, and a kind of organizational health guru that he worked with. And the two of them together wrote this book, No Rules, Rules. And it is uh, all about their culture of reinvention and the, the radical decisions they made years ago before they were kind of cool and hip and how Mm. they've led. Netflix being the juggernaut it is. And it has, it has so many great lessons for leaders and nonprofits, especially churches, because I think most leaders and most nonprofits and churches operate from a leadership playbook that is far more old school command and control, Mm. hierarchical, you know, and while we would never admit it, if you look at the decisions we make, the way in which we engage in leadership, it doesn't reflect the new value system we were just discussing with millennials. Netflix saw that 
transitioning and made radically different decisions. And the way that they handle feedback, the way that they handle um, compensation, the way that they handle running their business like a team, not mm. like a family. Sometimes in the church, we talk about family, and right. it's the most dysfunctional version of family I've ever seen. Right. And if we're really on mission, then at the end of the day, it's about a team performing. It's not about a family gathering for Thanksgiving dinner and just avoiding awkward conversations, right? Mm. So um, a lot of great lessons for nonprofit, for anybody, but I, I have found it especially helpful for nonprofit and church leaders. Great. Awesome. And did you have a second one or no? I thought you said I had two. Uh, yeah, well, Scott Belsky uh, wrote a book called The Messy Middle, and mm. The Messy Middle is is a great book about um, the, the, the middle journey of entrepreneurial organizations. Mm. We often hear uh, from leaders or write books about the beginning of a startup, like a church plant, or about the success on the back end, like a Saddleback or a Willow Creek. Right. Very rarely do people write books about the unbelievably painful, mm. circuitous, um, right. wandering journey in the wilderness right. in the middle. And his book is all about that as it pertains to products and things that he's built over time, like uh, Behance. And, you know, so Scott Belsky came out of Adobe and other organizations. Oh, cool. Awesome. Well, Ted, thank you so much for the time. Very rich. I'm going to look at both of those books and maybe the Netflix book. Maybe we'll read it as a team. It sounds very They're great interesting. on Audible. Both of those are, are far easier for me oh, ingested okay. on Audible through right. paper. Awesome. Well, listen, thank you. we got more to talk about, but thanks for joining the conversation. Friends, thank you for being a part of this. Look forward to continuing this conversation soon. <laughs>